hello, this is Dara Whelan and I'm the Irish Independence 1916 Project Coordinator and as part of our commemoration coverage we're bringing you a 10-part podcast series that's looking at the history of the Easter Rising in 10 Objects. It's based on the book A History of the Easter Rising in 50 Objects by well-known historian John Gibney who's already written the biography of Sean Houston for the acclaimed 16 Live series and he's currently the Glasnevin Trust Assistant Professor at Trinity College in Dublin. John, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Dara. On today's podcast, John, we are discussing a flag from the gunship Helga. But of course, describing it as a gunship in the first place is wrong in itself. Yeah, um, this is a flag that you can see in Collins Barracks in the uh, the exhibition Soldiers and Chiefs that the National Museum have had running for a number of years. Big blue flag has a various insignia on it that will look familiar. Um, and it flew off the back of the Helga, which is usually assumed to be a gunboat that came up the River Liffey and um, laid waste to much of Dublin city centre with artillery. The catch is that um, the Helga's role in the Rising is... Uh, it kind of illustrates the extent to which appearances can deceive and the, the degree to which, you know... The folklore of the Rising don't, doesn't necessarily match the reality because when, when we talk about the Helga or when people talk about the Helga, um, it's almost described like it's the Bismarck. It's this big dreadnought that was bristling with guns that, you know, steams up the River Liffey in sinister style and starts kind of causing all kinds of mayhem. Now, there was a ship called the Helga. We know that. Um, there's a, Here's a flag from, from the thing. There's other artifacts that survive from it. Uh, it was on the River Liffey. It did have a couple of guns. But... It's a gunboat in the sense that it was a boat that had two guns, but as some kind of military vessel, no, absolutely not. So tell me the background of it. Well, the Helga II was built in 1908 in Dublin. Um, because Dublin did have shipyards. Um, and it was built for the, what was then the Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction, and it was a research vessel. I mean, the thing had, whatever having guns, the Helga had labs on it. And the Helga was originally, the first task it did was uh, in 1909, 1911, the Royal Irish Academy organised a thing called the Clare Island, Island Survey, which was a, this micro, microscopic survey of every aspect of life in Clare Island off the West Coast. The Helga played a huge role in that. Now, the thing is, though, um, when the war broke out, Basically, anything that could float was requisitioned by the Admiralty for some kind of purpose. And the Helga was um, was earmarked for anti-submarine act duty of some type or another. And it was based in Kingstown, or Dunleary, as we would recognise it today. And it was given two guns, a £12 gun at the front and a £3 gun at the rear. And unless I'm getting my military history mixed up here, uh, the pound refers to the weight of the shells. Mm. Now, an 18 pounder was a field gun. We'll come back to them later on. Um, and the Helga, basically, on the 25th of April, kind of slowly made its way up the River Liffey. Um, and it fired at Boland's Bakery and missed Boland's Bakery. Now, Boland's is where Eamon de Valera and his detachment of the volunteers have based themselves. And de Valera had apparently put a tricolour on the roof of a nearby building to act as a diversion to give any potential uh, gunboat, to use that term, a target. Now, on the 26th of April, um, the Helga moved further up the river to attack the Liberty Hall. Uh, the catch is, though, if you look at where Liberty Hall is, and obviously Liberty Hall is the Liberty Hall of today, is not the Liberty Hall of 1916, but the Loop Line Bridge is still there big cast iron obstacle that was going to make it very, I mean, you couldn't shoot through it. Um, and the Helga's role in trying to, the Helga was basically, it fired a few shells at Liberty Hall, but there were two problems. One is that the loop line bridge was in front of it. And the other is that, again, a steamer was outside the customs house, kind of pushing it further out into the river. Now, what they did instead was uh, lob shells over the loop line bridge and dropped them onto Liberty Hall. Now, two of the crew apparently refused to operate the guns. The Helga only fired about 40 shells in the entirety of Easter week. And if you look at um, pictures of Liberty Hall after the Rising, it's still fairly intact. You know, the building, I mean, the building was raided by British troops. It wasn't It wasn't levelled and raised to the ground. Now, that does beg the question, however, well, what did raise buildings to the ground? Because when we look at all the photographs of the Rising that are doing the rounds at the moment, the photographs we, we see are photographs of the devastation of Sackville Street, Dublin city centre laid waste. There's a famous insurance map 
you know, that shows the damage done during the rising by, you know, artillery, as we assume, by fires and so forth. Um, now, the Helga didn't do that. Though it's understandable that some people actually um, thought that it may have done. And there were people in the GPO, volunteers, who, who assumed that the Helga had fired shells that hit them. Um, maybe it did, but it's highly unlikely it did much damage. So that begs the question, what did do the damage? Well, can I say, just before we get into that then, is was much of the thinking in sending the Helga up there, A, was either panic um, by the British Army to send something in quickly, or was it also the sense of having something very visible, very imposing, that was there to say, like you said, that they might not necessarily know where the shells were coming from, but suddenly they know that this gunship is there waiting and there's something kind of very intimidatory about it. Well, I don't think so, because if you look at the Helga, you wouldn't really be that intimidated by it. Um, and to be honest, I think while the volunteers were interested in sending a message as to what they were doing, the British weren't. The British had a more blunt set of priorities, which was to crush this rebellion. And um, So was a bad military planning or practice in that I sense? think it was desperation. Because there weren't that, I mean, you have to bear in mind the, um, a lot of the kind of equipment and weaponry that would have, that the Irish garrison would have had prior to the war was now on the Western Front. So I just think the British, uh, the British authorities looked at what, what was the hand, what was nearby, um, what could they get into Dublin to call, to, you know, crack, to crush the rebellion. Like when a rebellion broke out, there were maybe 400 troops, you know, that's part on duty. That's because the rest of them had the day off and the officers were famously at Ferry House watching the races and so forth. But on the first day of the rising, troops were rushed into Dublin from, uh, from the Curra, later from Belfast, and later on the week you would have had troops arriving from Britain itself. What was also brought down into Dublin would have been a few small pieces of field artillery, 18-pound guns, and again, it fires an 18-pound shell. And these would have been brought down um, from Atlone, actually, from what is now Custian Barracks and Atlone. They were brought on, the, on um, the Midland Great Western Railway, which dealt with the Galway line, they were dropped off in Broadstone Station and uh, were brought down to Fibsburg, where they first saw action. I mean, uh, on the first couple of days of the rising, the volunteers had built barricades up in Fibsburg and they were then shelled from the North Circular Road. Now, the thing is that the artillery was kind of kept, this is my theory on it, the artillery was kept kind of out of sight and somewhat out of mind in that um, some of that artillery ended up in Grange Gorman, you know, firing down towards O'Connell Street. Some of the other artillery pieces ended up in the vicinity of Trinity College and there are accounts of... Um, of artillery pieces scattered around the streets. I mean, one volunteer, Joe Good, he was actually from London, but he left a very interesting memoir that's just been republished. But he recalls soldiers pulling up paving stones on Delir Street for uh, gun trails. And gun trails are basically long sections of metal that form part of the chassis of the artillery piece. They were to stop the recoil, made to keep it keep it still, keep it steady. Another soldier, um, or well, a soldier from the opposite side, Sergeant Major Samuel Lomas of the Sherwood Foresters, recorded there was an 18-pound gun fired from the end of Moore Street. Now, the thing is, though, if you think of the if you think of these these artillery pieces, um, and also artillery from Trinity College was fired across the river from, towards Liberty Hall, these would have been kind of to a certain extent, uh, kind of tucked out of the way relative to the Helga, and the Helga does sound a bit more dramatic. You know, people, it may well be the case that more people would have seen this boat on the Liffey, more people would have heard it, and as well as that, if um, I suppose if you think of the um, if you think the sound of an artillery piece going off. Like I, w- I was at a thing there last year where the defence forces were firing off Hold Mausers um, in Wicklow and it was very, very loud, disorientating. Um, and, you know, I suppose if you, if, the, if you were hearing that in a confined space, oh yeah, buildings are all around you, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be confusing to figure out where the sound was coming from. That I'm sure that applies to artillery as well. But if you can see something floating in a river, complete with a couple of guns at each end, whether they're big or small, you might put two and two together and get five. And it's understandable that you might do that. So in some ways, the hell gets the rap for a lot of destruction that um, 
could be laid at the blame of other soldiers and other weapons and other people as well. Uh, and in fairness, these 18 pounders, they were sizable, they cause a lot of damage. And I suppose in f- bringing them into a city where you know urban buildings, urban population, there was going to be a lot of um collateral damage around that. Oh, there was, and um, and it's worth bearing in mind something about the well, the actual ammunition they would have used now. No, you know, military affairs anorak by any means, but it is it's worth knowing these kind of details. And one of the mistakes that a lot of people have made, myself included, has been to assume that uh, incendiary shells were used. Now, they weren't used because they hadn't yet been invented in 1916. They'd be invented later in the war to fire zeppelins. Um, but the shells that were used would have been um, would have been shrapnel shells, you know, ball bearings encased in a kind of wax or waxy substance within the shell, which would cause devastating, devastating wounds on flesh and blood. But maybe not so much to um, to, to buildings. Now and there's a there's a there's a there's a gas story of um Oscar Trainer, you know, the future Minister for Defence and, you know, um patron of the FAI in and around the GPO where he served as a volunteer and he records the impact of a shell and he describes this extraordinary sight of these uh you know, this molten wax and these kind of things, you know, dribbling along the ground and then some little elf comes out of nowhere and starts scooping them up and trainer goes to him, What are you doing? And the answer comes back with souvenirs. You know, so the thing is that these these might cause devastating wounds to flesh. That's what they were designed for, but maybe not for buildings. There is, however, one thing about the shells that apparently um, the impact of a shell, the, the kinetic energy, to use a technical term, of one of those shells landing is sufficient to cause to ignite something. And when the shells began getting lobbed into O'Connell Street, one of the first things that was hit was a chemical warehouse um, on the corner of Abbey Street. But these are the kind of things that, you know, if you wanted to start a fire, you couldn't ask for better things to hit. And apparently the, the 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 shell that hit the chemical warehouse ignited a barricade that was stretched across Abbey Street, causing the fire to spread. And bear in mind, this was in a commercial area. We talk about the looting, we hear about the looting, but it wasn't just a case that there was material that could be looted in these stores. There was material that could burn. And within a within a matter of hours, a matter of days, the entire eastern side of O'Connell Street was an inferno. And Vatten Trainer, actually, to go back to him, he recorded being in the uh, in the GPO and watching the plate glass uh, windows of department stores like Cleary's melt into the gutter from the, from the ferocity of the heat. So in some ways it seems that the um, the damage caused by the artillery, well it wasn't caused by the Helga, but it was caused by artillery, but it wasn't so much the physical damage of the shells atta- hidden stonework and masonry so much as um, the incendiary impact of these hitting things that, that could burn and causing devastating fires that destroy the structures of buildings, you know. The ruthlessness of it that is striking, I suppose, and that is maybe lost in a lot of the the, the narrative at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's um, I mean, the the, the attitude of the British military military authorities, and I I better give a nod to uh, Conor Mulva of UCD because I only found this out this off him the other day, um, as part of the road to the road the reflecting the rising event, that some of the orders, the private orders, um, issued by British commanders, basically called for well the effective destruction of buildings that, you know, containing people who could be construed as rebels. They were very, very harsh in what they were doing. And I mean, you know, it's people sometimes think of James Connolly's suggestion that, you know, as good capitalists and imperialists, they weren't going to destroy property. Well, they may have been good imperialists and capitalists, but at war, that was a different proposition as well. Would they have known it was a chemical warehouse that was there? I, they may well have done. Because um, apparently, like Nelson's pillar was used as a, a means of actually targeting the shells. You have a big, huge pillar in the middle of O'Connell Street and he could work off that. You know, there was apparently you know soldiers spotting from the begin from the bottom of the Lear Street, indicating which way the shell should fall. So they may well have known, or they may well have just assumed that you know 
they had to do this and they were going to get it done come what may. John, thanks for that. Um, next week on our podcast, The History of the Rising in 10 Objects, we'll be discussing 18th century books from Marsh's library that were damaged by gunfire. John's A History of the Rising in 50 Objects is published by Mercer Press and is in all good bookshops now. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, follow the show on SoundCloud, read, watch and listen to much, much more about 1916 on independent.ie forward slash 1916.